This piece was brought to you by GreatBrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening, and welcome to Fun Man About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this live weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and also right here on (laughs) HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I don't know what day it is because we are pre-recording this this episode. There's no there are no announcements today because we actually have not predicted when we're going to do this. Uh, but we are doing this because we are lucky enough to have snatched up uh, our really good friends from Moonlight Meadery uh, while they're in town. Uh, in part because we're brewing together tomorrow. Very excited about that. Um, Michael Fairbrother and Bernice Vanderwolf. Vanderberg. Vanderberg. Sorry. <laughs> Hey, thanks. Hello, welcome to <laughs> yeah. Fomenta About It. Welcome down to New York City. They just had a harrowing bus ride across town, down and across town on St. Patrick's Day. It unfortunately. Was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't we've we've known you guys for a while now. You make absolutely delicious mead. We're very lucky that we can get it here in New York City. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got started in mead. You started as a longtime home brewer, right, Michael? Right. I started back in 1995. So I started, I was at a party, and um, somebody offered me a sizer. And I wasn't sure what that was, but I said, I don't want to embarrass myself here, so let me pass my glass over. And I made the face that every baby makes when it tries something that's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and my eyes popped out of my head, and I was like, wow, what is this stuff? And the gentleman looked at me and he said, it's an apple mead. And I'm like, what's mead? <laughs> and he said, it's wine made from honey. I said, look, I was a beekeeper. How do you make wine from honey? <laughs> so he walked me through the process and I went home. And the next day I started making a batch. And I had two batches going. And by 2006, I was president of Brew for Die, the largest homebrew club in New Hampshire. And I always thought I was going to open a brewery someday. You know, because... I had a successful day job, and I thought giving that up was kind of crazy. So mm-hmm. I, I said, a brewery or nothing. And then it dawned on me when I was at a party, the holiday party for the club. When I pulled out a bottle of beer, my buddies were hanging around. But when I pulled out a bottle of mead, every woman in the room was knocking somebody <laughs> over. <laughs> and I said, i got to figure out how to make a business out of this. So I thought I could kind of keep the day job, thus the name Moonlight, because I was going to be working d- days and nights at the meadery. But I did nothing other than win a few competitions as amateur for 2007, 8, and 9. And I told everybody how I wanted to start this company in my garage part-time at night. And I actually told that to Omar from Surly Brewing Company. And Omar looked at me and he changed my life with one sentence. Because he said, how can you possibly think... You can do something you love part-time. <laughs> and I literally just fell apart. <laughs> I didn't know what to say to him. I thought, you know, how do you argue with something that true and basic? And so I started working on the business plan. And that fall, I won my third straight Mead Maker of the Year Award at the New England Regional Homebrewers Competition. And actually won Best of Show, first place out of 353 entries. 
And I used to hate it to try to tell people about what this meant to me, but I kind of embrace it now. And, and I literally drove home and I just started bawling in the car. I just realized that everything in my life was going to change and I was going to give it all up to chase my dreams. And uh, that was around September. By May, we had our federal license. And now, wait, start- what year was this? was 2010. 2010, okay. So was it not even four years ago? Mm-hmm. And um, first batch started, ready for sale in July. How big of a batch? Five gallons. Mm-hmm. Sold out one day. Wow. <laughs> and I quit my day job the next day. <laughs> what was that first batch? It was Desire. It's a uh, the one that won best to show. It's a black currant, blueberry, black cherry. It's one of our best selling meads that we make. And um, now three and a half years in, we're in twenty seven states now here in the United States and nationwide in Australia. And I'm going to be a guest speaker at the Australian National Homebrewers Convention this uh, coming October. And I can't tell you <laughs> That's fantastic. how freaking awesome that yeah. is. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So the, 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 what we've done, nobody thought possible. And everybody to this day still says nobody's going to want mead. But the difference we've seen is when you make a really good product consistently, people will buy it. You know, we were told, don't expect New York City to buy your product. The sales for New York City have been almost doubling every single quarter since we started here. And um, I can tell you when I did the Taste of uh, Brooklyn or Taste of the Town, I was here last fall. Uh, Yeah, the... the, uh, Oh, God. Put on by the Village Voice. Yes, yes, Yes. Village Voice. One handsome place, yes. good festival, was, whose name we all can't remember right now at all. Brooklyn Poor. Brooklyn, Brooklyn Poor. Poor. That's it. <laughs> and people were dying to try the product, and or my meads, and they, they literally said, we've been waiting for you to come here in town. And it was fantastic. Blew through the product. You know, we're going to be at the Atlantic City Beer Festival in a couple more weeks. Um, my assistant mead maker, Joe DeVito, will be there representing for us. Uh, Bernice and I will actually be pouring down in uh, Miami at Fisher Island, which is like the most exclusive island in the world. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I come funny. out and go, my plane, my plane. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. awesome. So, but when you had your first taste of mead, that was 2006, you said? No, 1995. Oh, 95. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, I spent a long time thinking about craft and thinking about you know the business. And when I thought about starting Meadery, what I wanted to do is bring the craft beer world to the wine world. Mm-hmm. And we have tin tackers, we have coasters, we have everything that a craft brewery might have, but we're a winery by license. And my distributors kind of scratch their head and go, what's with the tin tackers? You're a winery. No, I'm a craft meadery. <laughs> I want to make the best craft mead in the world. That's my mission. That's my goal. That's my passion in life. Not to do it to be the best because it's an ego. I want to do it because the best is my quality standards. Right. The best and is to you. You're deciding what that is. To I make them for my enjoyment. Your, if yeah. my customers don't like my meads, perfect. Guess who's going to drink them? I am. And I'm <laughs> drinking what I like. <laughs> yep. So starting from that five-gallon batch that sold out in one day back in 2010, yeah. how many, how much meat are you making? Well, what kind of system are you on? How many gallons or barrels do you make at a time? And how many are you gonna, probably going to make this year? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we're, our current batch size is around 1,000 gallons. We still have some 500-gallon batches, but we have 
two at a thousand gallons a piece. And so we can flip those over every three months. So we have close to 6,000 gallons under fermentation at any one point in time. So multiply that by four, you get 24,000 gallons, which is about 24,000 cases. So that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How many different varieties? Uh, almost 70. So, wow. you know, we don't try to strive for the most, but the, somehow we got there. Um, like I said, it was diversity. I think of the day where I can walk into a Mexican restaurant and somebody asks me what kind of salsa I want with those chips. Or even better, what kind of chips do you want with a salsa? And, you know, right. choose two. People like choices. Mm-hmm. I want choice. So I make the meads, like I said, for myself. We we tend to support homebrew competitions where we'll um, co-brew a mead um, with the entrant who wins the competition. We were just up at the midwinter homebrew competition up in Milwaukee. And a raspberry chipotle mead took the mead maker's choice. And... I can't wait to brew it. I mean, the raspberry was beautiful. The chipotle had a nice little smokiness off to the side. Yeah. yeah. That one-two combination was just spectacular. And, um, you know, we still got a couple other meads that we got in the pipeline to make, but it takes many months to get a recipe approved. And once it's approved, you got to make it and find room in the fermentation tanks. Mm. So it's a little complicated. The fastest you get a batch out is three months? If it's a current batch that we have approved, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're gonna get to some <laughs> some nutrient additions. Yes. Let's talk later uh, in the second segment. But how many batches had you done before uh, before 2010? So you you fell in love with mead in, in 1995, and you immediately started brewing mead in 1995. Yeah, Sorry, I still kept it. brewing beer. I've got a 20 gallon brewery in my basement. So you know, I love beer. I drove around with a license plate that said brewer for over a decade. Worked my way up to be president of Brewery Die four times. I was treasurer of the club. I ran the New Hampshire NHBrewers.com website. I created the first uh, beer map or applet or maplet. I don't know what the heck you call those things, but eventually everybody else kind of copied the idea, so I abandoned it. But um, all things beer. That's the yeah. what was the name of my map. And I love the art of fermentation, and that's what kind of drives me to to do what I do to this point. To me, when I started brewing, it was a meditation. It was a way to find peace in the world. Mm-hmm. And it still has that beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. And that's kind of like I just fired up the old brewery at the house this past weekend to, you know, get ready for some... Uh... And tell us about that. <laughs> We're very excited. So I saw you post on Facebook. You were very excited to be brewing beer again. You're like, I still got it. I still got it. Um, but how did your day go? You made an IPA? Yeah, yesterday. I made a 20-gallon batch of a, um, IPA. I used uh, one pound of Amarillo hops. So uh, split it into four different additions. Um, but before, as I fired up the brewery, my um, hot liquor tank sprung a leak. Right. And it was a nice little pinhole where you couldn't actually see it. <laughs> And uh, But I looked underneath the tank as I saw a puddle of water forming. And I'm looking, and it looked like a spiderweb thread. That was how thin the line was kind of shooting out wow. the t- bottom yeah. of the tank. And I'm like, you know, there's a 100,000 BTU burner behind it, so I can't really kind of put my hand in there to see what's <laughs> going on. <clears throat> it wasn't vaporizing, at least. So I shut down the brewery, emptied the tank out, pulled the tank up, put it to a light, and I could see the light through the bottom of the tank. So I knew I had a hole. The water gave it away, too, but I had confirmation. <laughs> and um, 
I'm trying to figure out now what do I do with this system. You know, I bought it through Beer, Beer, and More Beer. It was about 11, 10 and a half years ago. Warranty ran out at 10 years. So I'm kind of on my own. I could find a new um, welder to kind of patch up the tank, but a lot of my homebrewing friends suggested JB Weld, so I picked up a little tube for 4 bucks, and I figured I'd give it a try. Mm-hmm. So Saturday I applied the JB Weld to the tank, Sunday, I was brewing. That's so awesome. I was pretty freaking happy about that. And um, so I brewed up the batch yesterday, and I had three of my granddaughters come by, and they were watching and tasting wort for the first time and smelling the hops. And these little girls from two all the way up to seven were, ah, it smells bitter. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait till the day they're craft beer aficionados. <laughs> And I mean, I, it's just, it reminded me so much of when I started brewing and my kids were that age and teaching them the art of beer and the passion that goes into it. And so the day went flawless. I mean, I literally, you know, brewed the batch, came out a little stronger than I expected. I hit uh, 18 and a half bricks, so 1074 starting gravity. Yeah. Uh, pound hops. I'd grown. Um, to uh, a, at least a quart starter for pitching 1068. What size batch did you do? 20 gallons. 20 gallons, all right. Yeah, and uh, so I took two packs of Y yeast uh, 1068, grew them up, and put it into a, a canned base starter that I had and let it go. And the airlock had positive pressure this morning when I went down and chilled it down to 68 degrees to start it off. And 1068, that's the ESB yeast? Uh, um, the London ale yeast? Maybe I've got the I'm number sorry. wrong. I got the American ale yeast, so okay. I, maybe I got the numbers mixed up in my head. But ten fifty six American ale. Ten fifty six. It's been a while. I, I worked. I was just curious. Ten sixty eight. Maybe I can never remember the numbers and the names anyway. <laughs> well, so. I stay away from ten sixty eight. I mean, it, it's worked well for some people, but it has a diastole thing um, that if you don't give it enough time, it doesn't go away. Yeah, so that's it's not what I had. It's okay. Yeah. But I got to use it again. I have to get back in it and, and just give it the proper respect because it's a great <laughs> yeast. It's very flocculent and it's actually scarily flocculent. So when you're done, when you rack the beer off this yeast, it, it looks like this crazy gelatinous blob thing that I've never seen yeast be like. Let's see. For me, the the best part of yesterday was I used to brew to kind of get isolated, to get in my own space. And my life has changed a lot from when I started brewing back in '95 to today. Where, you know, trying to find isolation is not what I'm trying to do. You know, Bernice and I got married almost a year and a half ago. And for me, taking time away from her feels like lost time. Mm-hmm. Whereas before it used to be bonus time for me where I was trying to find happiness, right? And um, for her to come down last night and say, oh, the basement smells fantastic. I love the smell <laughs> of the hops and the malt. I'm like, God, I, I found my partner in life. Yeah, I have a happy man when he brews. <laughs> I love it when he brews. Even the dog is happy. <laughs> this is awesome. Those are awesome words of wisdom. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to Foment About It on Heritage Radio Network. Dot org.
Welcome back to Femen About It, it. <laughs> on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. So we're in the studio with Michael Fairbrother and Bernice Vanderberg of Moonlight Meadery in New Hampshire. So, Michael, let's talk about somebody who maybe has never made a mead but was would like to to start. So I think one of the things that holds people back, well, first of all, because I, I make short meads. I've actually never made a full-strength mead. But one of the things, if you mention mead, most people have no idea still today what meads are. What's a mead? Honey wine. How do you do it? So what would you recommend for somebody that's looking to start making meads? So it's a very simple recipe. Um, you can start with any type of honey that you can get your hands on. I'd certainly recommend finding a local beekeeper first, not going down to Sam's Club to, to buy the honey they may have there, primarily because you don't know what's in the honey. could be, say, USA grade A honey, which means where it's packaged, not where it's from. So, you know, the fresher the honey, the better. So if you can get it right from a beehive, the better you're going to get. My basic recipe is one part honey, three parts water. We do not heat the honey, so the honey comes in fresh. We'll heat the honey up to maybe 80, 90 degrees just to make it so we can pump it through the pump. But you could use warm water or cold water. You're trying to get to ending grav or temperature of about 64 degrees, so you want to use pretty cold water. You don't want to be using boiling hot water to dissolve the honey. It takes mm-hmm. a little muscle. You're going to stir the honey in with the water, and then you're going to add a yeast. Um, we grow use... Um, Lavalin 71B, it's a white wine yeast from Narrowbone, France. Okay. We follow the um, rehydration specs that are come with the yeast. You can go to scottlabs.com to look up how to do that. So we use a little bit of GoFirm and FirmAid K mm-hmm. to uh, rehydrate that yeast and with a little bit of honey in the, in the hot water to rehydrate. And that's just to get it proofed. And once you get it going, then you're going to add that yeast into the must and you need to temperate the the must the the yeast with the the must that you're going to add it to so if there's a huge temperature difference you want to add a little bit of the cooler must to your yeast to get the temperature close okay and then once you add the the yeast to it you're going to then spend the next three days and it takes every 24 hours because that yeast is multiplying it's growing by a factor of two every 24 hours and you're going to add some nitrogen, which is in the form of yeast nutrients. And what's going to happen when you add that nitrogen, the new yeast cells are going to assume, assimilate that nitrogen and grow. So they're not fermenting. They're not creating alcohol at this point. They're just growing in number. So essentially, at the end of three days, you have this massive army of yeast that is sole mission in life is to ferment that meat as quickly as possible. So you need to control that. Let me just interrupt you for a second. What form of nitrogen do you recommend if you're a home brewer? Yeah, there we. I recently went to uh, the University of Davis um, Bee and Pollination Center course on heat making, and they had a couple samples. One was uh, with GoFirm, and one was with DAP or Dimonium Phosphate. Uh, phosphate. The DAP had a really kind of bubblegum type aroma flavor to it that I didn't care for whatsoever. Now, technically, the only difference is the concentration of nitrogen between the two. All I can tell you from 20 years of experience, don't use DAP. Okay. Use GoFirm and Firm 8K. And what you want to do is blend them together. And in a five-gallon batch, you're going to split it to about a quarter teaspoon per addition for the first, well, you got quarter into the yeast nutrient, uh, yeast that you're going to grow, then a quarter every day for the first three days. And what that's going to do 
is focus the yeast on growth and then fermentation. Fermentation, the yeast is exothermic, which means it's going to generate heat. But most homebrewers don't have to worry about this. A five-gallon batch isn't going to generate that much more heat over a, a t- standard room temperature. But you want to be somewhere in the mid-60s to, to really get the, the ideal flavor profile. It'll ferment out in about a week and a half to two weeks. But let it sit there for about three months. And after three months, then you're going to want to rack that meat off that yeast and figure out what you want to do with it at that point, whether it's going into oak, extended aging, ready to filter, put it into bottles, kegs, whatever your choice may be. But that three-month mark for us seems to be the, the magic of perfection. And you can taste it earlier. I made a coffee mead one time where I first tasted it. I was ready to dump it down the drain. I was like, I mean, God, that's rough. Two more months later, I took it to a brew for your die meeting, and I had a grandmaster judge try it, and he's like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. I'm like, well, well, something to pay attention to. And another month later, I submitted it into this competition, and while Desire took first place, what our mead now called Coffee in Bed took fifth. So fifth place out of 353 entries. You know, I'll take those kind of odds, and it still tends to be a really popular one. So knowing that the flavors can evolve over time, and if you rush them, they taste green or raw. You know, and we never try to back-sweeten. And I say that with a little bit of caveat. So sometimes we're kind of forced to try to figure out what to do with a mead where the f- sweetness is too dry and doesn't match the fruit or some of the melomel's characteristics and we're like well do we add honey do we add sweeter mead to it or what do we do if we're going to add mead or sweet honey to it we're trying to look to see if it'll continue to ferment a little bit so we can kind of stick to our the mantra i have which is we don't pack sweeten Mm-hmm. Because raw honey has a different type of flavor than anything fermented. And the best way I can describe that to people to think about is when you add ketchup to meatloaf that's been cooked, it tastes different than if you add it before you cook it with the meatloaf, right? So that's the difference that the honey will taste before and after uh, a fermentation. So you really want to find harmonious harmonious flavors in um, in your product or mead and... That's the key. I mean, I'll give away every recipe I make because I'm not worried about the recipe. It's my sense of smell and sense of taste that takes years of skill and mastery to become. Anybody can make mead. Making mead is simple. I mean, honey, water, yeast, done. Yeah. Now what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the now what is the the vast Encyclopedia Britannica of of what do you do when it gets to this point and you're not happy with it? And, you know, I've heard Gordon Strong and Kurt Stock talk about how they, and Steve Fletty, about how they, you know, adjust meads to to get them to where they want to go to. And that's the key. That's the chef. That's the artisanal part of the product or process. Timing. Taste. It's craft. That's what the craft (laughs) is. So speaking of taste and aroma, let's talk a little bit about because you guys know a lot about pairing with meads. And I think meads actually pair beautifully with a lot of foods. Mead pairs beautifully with a whole spectrum of food. Think about chefs and when you cook food. Honey in itself is just so natural to that process. 
whether it's pairing with chocolates or cheese or just various dishes. Um, mead is, whether it's a dry, a semi-sweet or a sweet, it, it, there's just a whole world out there. And what always surprises me is that people are afraid. People are so uh, boxed in by what they've been taught in the wine world about this is right and this is wrong. Right. And so they're scared. They're, they're afraid to actually step out and say, well, this is what I think and this is what my palate is and this is what I like. And that's what we encourage people to do. We're like, there is no right, there is no wrong. Mm -hmm. This is about you experimenting. And the only guidelines um, that I give is a few things. You, you, you look at a cheese or a chocolate or, or a meal and you say, well, where do I want to go with this? Because, again, there's so many options. Do I want to have something that's in balance and in harmony? What is it that I'm going to pick out about that particular uh, ingredient that I want to pair that with? Am I looking for the sweetness? Am I looking for perhaps something else? Am I looking um, to balance it? Or am I looking to go completely opposite? Do I really want that wow factor where people are going to like step back and say, whoa, that's nothing like I thought it was going to be? Yeah, like Think about a chef, right? How many chefs can cook with honey? Honey becomes a natural instinct to a chef's palate of what they're trying to build and what they're trying to create for a flavor profile, whether adding it to a cheese plate with some apples or fruit or, you know, baklava, different types of dishes. So honey's got that natural element to accentuate food. And some of the meads we make pair up so well with whether it be seafood, spicy foods, curry dishes. I mean, you know, Bernice and I are starting to outline our first book on what we're trying to do with, um, you know, a mead book and what would it be. But, you know, a big section of that book is going to be about food pairings and trying to, you know, she's been a, a guest speaker now twice at the National Homebrewers Convention. The first year she talked about mm -hmm. mead and cheese pairing and last year was chocolate and mead. It was chocolates and meats. So okay. she's really got a, a sense for the palate of where... To find creativity. And there's so many exciting things. I mean, take, for example, just one that always stands out for me in our tasting room that I tell people about is, is fling, which is a strawberry rhubarb mead. And I love that one because it's such a wonderful combination. You get a very smooth, sweet strawberry and then the, the, the uh, almost that hit of rhubarb on the end um, is such a surprise to people. And thinking about pairing that, um, I tell people, I'm like, well, um, if you had to uh, pair that as a uh, sort of a main meal, think about something spicy. Because what that's going to do, it's going to trick your palate. That little lift in the rhubarb in the end actually tricks your palate into thinking that dish is going to be spicier. Whereas if you leave it at room temperature and serve it as a dessert mead or a dessert wine at the end of a meal, pair it with a, a New York cheesecake. Yeah, that's what I was exactly it's what I was It's absolutely perfect. It's just the perfect pairing for a New York cheesecake. Sold. Yeah. Sold. <laughs> so earlier when you came in here, we were kind of asked, hey, so what's new with you guys? Or what's new with Moonlight? And you have... Something, Always something new. Yeah, something ridiculously exciting. So previously, all of your meads have only been bottled. Correct. So we just started um, kegging some of our meads um, based, I think, a little over a year ago. Um, one of your um, guests from the Blind Tiger had talked about our Kurt's apple pie, and she said that it was the best meat she's ever tried, hands down. She said, do you ever get it on draft? Let me know. Mm -hmm. I'm letting her know. 
<laughs> you know how News great alert. it is, Catherine. <laughs> Look at you, Catherine. Kurt's apple pie is on draft, and um, we're just starting. We just got our first few orders for kegs in California. Um, it's new for us. We're just still trying to figure out how do you put a 15, 16% meat on draft and have everybody make money. Um, it looks quite doable. Yeah. So it really looks doable, and it's the same great flavor. It's a key keg, which is a keg that does not carbonate the mead, so the, the gas pressurizes the liner uh, that has the mead. Yeah. So it's it will not stuff. carbonate. It will not oxidize. I mean, you could you could literally pump it out of the keg with a foot pump or right. an air pump right. you know, type of situation. Without affecting the quality of the liquid. And nothing changes, yeah. and it's never going to change. So day one versus day 10 or 20, 50, 100, whatever the days may be, same quality product coming out of that draft. Yeah. What is in Kurt's apple pie? Kurt's apple pie is our number one bestseller. So we um, dilute the honey with apple cider. So it's fresh pressed apple cider, so no water added. After fermentation, we add Vietnamese cinnamon and Madagascar bourbon vanilla beans. What uh, what is the flavor of Vietnamese cinnamon? Is it uh, that's the thing? real cinnamon? Yeah. That's not the stuff from the fake trees. Ceylon, yeah, yeah. it's um, not the Ceylon, but it's um, so Ceylon is another one that's a little lighter in color than the Vietnamese cinnamon. It's a little darker. It's about ten times more potent than what they call cinnamon in the grocery stores. And I say by what they call cinnamon, the stuff you buy in a grocery store that says cinnamon is fake. Don't buy it. <laughs> Get to the Saigon cinnamon or real Vietnamese cinnamon. It smells ten times more floral, and it has ten times more oil and 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 gusto to it. So the the flavor just jumps out and screams at you. Literally, my UPS driver came into the meadery one morning and he looked at me. He says, "No delivery today." And I'm like, "What the hell are you doing here then?" I mean, he goes, oh, "Fine." He brings in this five pound box of Vietnamese <laughs> cinnamon. The winery smelled amazing. Oh, I mean, literally, we, we'll open a container just, and the, the aroma just kind of wafts around the room. And people 10 feet away are like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, that's what it smells like just in the room. Yeah. When you put that into a meat or into cookies or cakes or spite, you know, anything else, that flavor just screams, ho, oh. ho. I spent an entire summer one year trying to figure out how to make a meat that we call breathless, which is just a... It's like a fireball candy. So I went to an HA conference, and they had these this fireball mead, and they actually made it with fireball candies. And I said, well, there's got to be a better way to making it than... Using and, fireball candies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's got to be a better way. And um, so as I, I employed my employees to come by and sample to see which was the best. We started with regular um, cinnamon, then we tried apple pie spice, and then we tried Saigon cinnamon... And then we tried cinnamon oil, which is made from the oil, the oils from a cinnamon leaf off a tree. That's the way to get it. If you want that fireball rich candy flavor, you get cinnamon oil. It's a pain in the neck to filter out. But you let it sit in there for a couple of weeks, that, that means going to light your toes on fire. <laughs> and it's, awesome. it's amazing stuff. It but awesome. our Kurtz apple pie, we use the uh, Saigon cinnamon or Vietnamese cinnamon. And... Um, I can't. I mean, we we're going to make another thousand gallons this week. That's. I mean, how, how much you, are you putting in bottles, yeah. and how much are you putting in kegs? Uh, we've only got eighty kegs to start with, okay. so we're just kind of. And these are five. Are, how big? Are yeah, the kegs? key kegs. Uh, they're twenty liters, so about five gallons. Okay. Cool. Are we going to see them in New York? 
I certainly hope so. We're um, hopefully we're working. We have a awful lot of uh, (laughs) uh, people in the pipeline. We got our brand agent and then our distributor, but um, we're certainly working on it. We well, I'm going to start asking bars. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Well, I'm trying to convince my partners at Five Hundred Eight. I want to drink curds on curds apple pie on draft. (laughs) Yeah, you know the whole point of why we're here in New York City this week is to you know we're super honored to be. Um, co-brewing a beer with a 508 Gastro oh, yeah. Pub and Brewery, so and um, yeah, I mean, God, I'm really, I'm really, I'm, like I'm, really, I'm, I'm We've been talking about this for for a long time, almost a year. Like I've been I've been very excited about this, and I'm glad we're finally come to to fruition. We have honey from uh, from Tremblay Apiaries in Upstate New York and Catskills, uh, Honey Blossom Honey, and we're gonna make a saison. Should be pretty fun, which we will feature during New York City Mead Week, NYC Mead Week. Well, at Braggett Saison. Oh, sorry, Braggett Saison, yes. Braggett Saison. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We got, what, 60 pounds of uh, orange blossom honey that you got procured. And uh, Mm -hmm. I now have my dusty uh, brewing boots on, so I I can't wait to come down and uh, work with you tomorrow. And a touch of of acid uh, acid malt to kind of like, kind of of like spice it up a little bit. And we will let you guys all know when that will be on tap. And hopefully you guys will be down for the week. Yeah, I hope so. And we'll, we'll set up some events and some other things going on. If we can manage it, we'll all look at everybody's schedule. The ahead of May of Mead, Mead, Mead Week in May. The Mead Week in, yeah, Mead Week is in May. The third week of May. Ooh, uh, tough conflict. My son's graduating college in Lugano, Switzerland, so oh, I may not be able to make this year. Switzerland or Mead Week? <laughs> yeah, I know where your priority lies. I've already told the young man he has to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> We don't want to interfere with anything that important, for sure. Well, thank you very, very much for coming down and joining us. I'm familiar about it. I'm excited for our brew day tomorrow. We'll have a recap about that maybe uh, maybe next week on um, next week's episode. But good God, thank you for driving and coming We're straight from the bus station. For you to have us, Chris thank and so Mary. Thank you so much for having yeah, us. Yeah, and here for tonight. all of you out there, you have a mead locate. You have a list on your website, right? So you can go to moonlightmeadery.com, and um, from there you can see where to buy. Um, for here in New York. Certainly no challenges in New York City and Long Island, the rest of the state. Um, we have a few challenges, but we're we're about to get on top of that. So um, ask your local store or restaurant to carry our product. Yeah, if you want to try Moonlight. Ask, ask for it, demand it. Yeah, ask yeah. for it, demand it. You won't be disappointed. Yeah. For men about it. For men for about, men about it. it over here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.